And so we're going to go through this concept of theological triage. Um, early on in the life of Mercy Hill, we talked about how we wanted to have a body that was, be, that was able to communicate theologically, able to discuss these things, but also knew um, what their tone should be in discussing certain topics. Uh, and so what we've kind of presented is the idea of dogma, doctrine, and discussion. This is language that I've used for a long time. I always think about it like a bullseye where dogma is non-negotiables of the Christian faith, which we'll be dealing with today. Doctrine are things that really define your body probably more than anything else. And then lastly, discussion are issues that are peripheral. They can. And, um, and so that being said, like the discussion are things that we want to be able to have conversations about. Probably in the middle of those conversations, laugh at each other because we're being probably too dogmatic about an issue that is not that clear, perhaps. And just know how to, conver- know how to conversate with other people who perhaps call themselves brothers or Christians. And so that's what I want to do over the next three Three weeks. We're going to break it down into dogma, doctrine, and discussion. I will tell you that a lot of this is stolen, um, and I'll just go ahead and confess that. Uh, a lot of it is stolen. The concept is stolen from Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He wrote a paper that was really influential to me, um, and it was just called Theological Triage. Uh, the whole idea of it is being able to assess what are primary, secondary, and then third tier or tertiary issues. And so uh, what we're going to do this uh, evening, by the way, I am going to say this morning 15 times, just ignore it, move right past it. And if anybody listens to it later, they'll just think we did it in the morning. Um, And so just to kind of give you a little bit of what we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss the Apostles' Creed, which is for the longest part of Christian history. What what is dogma? Well, this defines it, I think, and it defines it really well. And just to maybe give you a resource, uh, um, sorry, Al Mohler just published this book called The Apostles' Creed, where he walks through it. Um, An excellent resource. I found it to be really, really helpful, and it will probably help you to maybe... um, to build out some of the categories that I'm going to give you this evening. Um, so with all that said, let's, um, let's pray and then we'll dive into the study. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with one another. Lord, there's just nothing sweeter than gathering with the saints, whether it be on the Lord's Day or whether it be um, today. It's such a joy to sit together, to, to celebrate Christ together, to look in and, and delve into the truths of Scripture that we celebrate, that make us who we are. And so, Father, we just ask you as we come that you would help us to study these things, to do so intently and with purpose as well. Uh, it's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. All right. So just to kind of maybe as a, as a disclaimer, we're going to be a bit more casual. It's okay. Like if something happens, if kids are running around and stuff like that, we understand that happens. And uh, so if you hear a baby scream, first of all, it's mine. Um, and secondly, you, everybody be all right. So with that said, we are going to discuss dogma, doctrine, and discussion. And this, uh, this week, we're going to start with dogma. So the first thing that I think is important for us to ask is, why is the study important? So why is it so important that we're able to place these, uh, these doctrines, this theology in specific categories, and, and, and really how is that going to impact us? So I want to give a couple of reasons why this is really important. So first and foremost is in our world today, it's really important that we're inclusive. Like that's a major premise of the culture around us is that we be very inclusive to every person. Now the issue is that there can be literally any person on the planet that claims to be a Christian all the while denying literally everything that makes Christianity Christianity. And so uh, a couple of ways that we've seen this done over the past, um, over the past decades, one of which was 
Billy Graham, who were grateful for Billy Graham and his evangelistic efforts, but there was a moment where Billy Graham reached out across uh, the aisle, if you will, to, uh, to the Catholic Church and wanted to bring them into what he was doing. And when he did this, essentially what he did was give hearty approval to various practices that were occurring inside of the Catholic Church, and I would argue that they are completely contradictory to what is clearly taught in Scripture. And so that's one way. And another way is there was a group of pastors that gathered um, for what is called what was called an elephant room. Maybe some of you have seen that, um, where men like Mark Driscoll, who's kind of been back in the news lately, Matt Chandler, um, David Platt, and various others sat down with leading pastors um, of, of, of rapidly growing churches and talked about these things. And there was a man there named T.D. Jakes, and many of you may be familiar with him, T.D. Jakes, um, is what is called a, he's a Unitarian, a modalist, even more specifically. And in essence, he denies the Trinity. And what occurred in that meeting was Mark Driscoll reaches across the aisle, shakes his hand, and calls him brother. And so that, that's not a reality. We can call him brother all we want to, but if they deny the Trinity, essentially they deny the foundation of the Christian faith. They deny the God that we say we serve. And so the, one of the most important reasons is, is what's called ecumenicalism, where we want to bring people in and serve with them. And we want to do that in some areas, but we can't do that on dogmatic issues. We can't do that in the issues that we're going to discuss today. If there's a difference here, then what you have is someone who we can't call brother. Um, and, 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 you know, perhaps you've even heard or noticed that on Sunday I, will, I, I use language like brother and sister, and then I'll use friend. Um, and if I use the word friend, I'm normally speaking to the unbeliever in the room. And I know that you're thinking back into the, our conversations. If I called you friend, I wasn't assuming that you were an unbeliever. I just sometimes do that. Um, so uh, the reason it's important is ecumenicalism on dogmatic issues, but then we can see dogmatism over doctrinal issues. Um, where we are fighting tooth and nail. We're fighting each other. We're fighting brothers over doctrinal issues. Now, I think one of the clearest places we can see that is inside of the genuine faithful Baptist church as well as genuine faithful Presbyterian churches. I love my Presbyterian brothers. It's sad that they're wrong about baptism, but but nonetheless, I'm glad to call them brother. Um, I'm glad that we have we agree on the dogmatics of the Christian faith and we can press preaching the gospel together, being dogmatic in these areas and assuming then that the individual is not your brother because they disagree with you on some minor issues, um, I think is rather foolish. And frankly, it is in essence infighting, which the scripture warns against. Um, and so dogmatic dogmatism over doctrinal issues. And then this one I think is almost more prevalent than anything else is disunity over discussion issues. And so inside the Christian faith, there are very clear dogmatic statements that are gospel issues, and we can't disagree about those at all. There's doctrinal issues that we can disagree about, and we're probably going to go to different churches, but really it's just maybe we view some things differently. Discussion topics are issues that really should never cause any disunity. Uh, discussion issues, I'm not even going to touch today because I'm going to prepare very thoroughly for that one because it is almost always something that is a really hot-button issue to you, um, and you can become very passionate about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but we want to be, be honest about the positions that we hold and say, you know, this is a discussion issue. We can disagree about this. We're going to go to the same church. We're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to serve together. We're going to preach the same gospel, um, and we're just going to have some disagreements here. And so we'll discuss that later. That's going to be a good time. Um, so anyway, that's why the study is important, and I think all of those things are prevalent inside of evangelicalism, which I don't really like that term today. But more importantly, we have to ask the question, why, why do this study here? 
Um, we are unapologetically a doctrinal church. Um, we have doctrinal preaching. We want the saints of God to grow in knowledge of God. It's one of our, uh, what we call measures. Our hope is to see saints grow in knowledge of God, and because they're growing in knowledge of God, grow in love for God, and because they're growing in love for God, grow in faithfulness. Um, and so with that, a lot of times we can become rather dogmatic about secondary issues, and often knowledge does puff up. But we want to make sure that the knowledge that is actually occurring and, and being had here is a knowledge that is rooted in the person of Jesus. And so if we love Christ and we're seeing and beholding him and it's causing us to love him all the more and thus be faithful to him, then, then that's what we're aiming for. And so the reason we want to do that here is because what we want inside of this body is first and foremost fidelity to dogma. We will be faithful to the dogmas of the Christian faith. And to be real honest, with you, if you ever see us swerve in this area, leave. Leave, because we've abandoned the faith. Um, when you see us abandon the dogmas of the Christian faith, this ceases to be a church. Um, one, of the, um, one of the early sermons that I did on, um, on what is the church was quoting what the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith says when it says that some churches have so degenerated that they can no longer be churches of God, but rather synagogues of Satan. Um, when we've abandoned the dogmas of the Christian faith, we can no longer be called a church of Christ. We must be called a, a synagogue of Satan. And so, that being said, we want to have some fidelity, and I think it's good to define those so that we can understand what we're being faithful to. We want to have doctrinal distinction. I'm not, like, I, hopefully we've been rather clear about what we hold to uh, and we argue is biblical um, inside of this church. We're, we're as, we're as uh, I like to say, transparent as possible. You have every ounce of our doctrine really laid out in the abstract of principles. Some of those would fall into doctrine and discussion. Some of those are dogma. They're non-negotiables. Um, and so the dogmas you'll find that we're not going to negotiate on, the doctrine that distinguishes us from another body we're going to cling to. Um, and then the discussion, hopefully, we're going to hold with an open hand, being able to discuss it amongst ourselves, which leads us, lastly, to charitable discussion. There is nothing more sorrowful to me than a church that has taken theology off the table of discussion. Um, one of the things that I noticed early on as I was serving in uh, churches that were established, had been there for a long period of time, um, was that theology was off limits. If you talk about theology, you're essentially inviting disunity. Well, brothers and sisters, like, when we search the Scriptures and we want to have conversations about these things, it's actually, I think, promoting promoting unity. If we're actually being able to sit down and have these discussions in a way that's God-honoring and God-glorifying, uh, Colossians says, always, uh, I'm sorry, forgive me, um, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer everything. And it's not assuming then that you're discussing football. It's talking about you discussing the things of God and doing so in a way that will build you up into a knowledge of God, which leads to steadfast love and lastly, faithfulness. And so this is the hope. The whole reason that we're doing this is so that we can understand what we're being faithful to dogmatically, what we're going to be, some of the distinctives of this body, and then lastly, how we can interact with each other in discussion on issues that we might disagree with and, um, and do so charitably. So with that said, I want to give you a couple of key words that are really important as we come forward. So the word that you're going to see me use a whole lot tonight is probably heresy. Now, heresy is a word that has a very, very harsh meaning. Um, 
essentially, when someone says heresy in regard to doctrine of belief, they are saying that you then are not in orthodox Christianity. You are in some sect or something of that nature. If we were to have this discussion perhaps with a Jehovah's Witness, we would say that their understanding of Christ, their Christology was heretical in nature. It was heresy. They deny the person of Christ that's revealed in Scripture. Um, And so, this is pretty much the only time I'm going to use the word heresy is in this discourse. You're not going to hear it probably in doctrine or discussion unless a question or something like that arises. And then the second one is heterodoxy. This is a belief that is to some degree normative, but not the majority. Um, heterodoxy is, it's just not a normative belief, but it doesn't exclude you then from the Christian faith. Um, so with that, that's kind of a little bit about where we're going, why we're doing it. Hopefully you will find this to be profitable. Um, and hopefully what we'll have on the end of this is a deeper fidelity to dogma, a very clear distinction in our doctrine, and then lastly, very civil, encouraging, sharpening discourses in discussion. So with that said, I want to present to you the verse that we're basing this off of, Jude 3. By the way, every time I get to a book that doesn't have more than one chapter, I always do Jude 1, 3, and my computer freaks out on me. Um, That was irrelevant. Jude 3. So Jude 3 says this, beloved, or beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the hope is that what we're doing is doing just that, contending, as Jude was, for the faith once delivered to the saints. And I think probably one of the best ways for us to do that is to examine what the apostles really articulate. So what is the Christian faith? And I think the Apostles' Creed does an excellent job of walking us through that. So with that said, what we're going to do is just walk through the Apostles' Creed. Now, full disclosure... There's a lot of slides here, and I'm going to do my very best to make it through in an hour, which means I'm either going to hit 40 minutes or I'm going to hit 100 or, or an hour and 20 minutes. And if you need to leave, like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, so with that said, let's just look at the Apostles' Creed and go for it. So I'm just going to read it. Most of you probably are familiar with it. Some of you may actually have it memorized. <clears throat> and so it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. So there's two words that probably stood out to you in there that brought real quick red flags. We'll discuss them. Don't throw anything at me just yet. Um, So let's walk through them. We're just going to run through these together as quickly as we can. Um, And so the first statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So what is this articulating? First and foremost, it is arguing that God is exactly who he says he is. And so the simple statement is we believe in God as the Father. Psalm 115.3 says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The very first part of this statement is believing in a God who is actually God. Um, We live in a world where, and frankly, we live in 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 a place where there is a prevailing thought that God is actually not God. A.W. Pink said it this way, uh, everybody loves God until he's on his throne. Uh, that the whole premise here is that we serve a God who is actually God. And how then do we know him? And so you see from this statement in Psalm 115, verse 3, he's in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. He is actually on his throne, he is reigning. We do not 
subscribe to what is often referred to, and I think probably prevailing here, is moralistic therapeutic deism, that we have a God who's far off, who provides some morality to the people and perhaps some comfort, but not any genuine comfort. It's just a reason for you to be good. What we actually see is a God who is, who is God. But in that, <clears throat> excuse me, in that exact same statement, we have a really sweet phrase. We believe in God the Father. So listen to this language from Romans 8, 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so essentially what we see here is because because of the finished work of Christ, we get to call God our Father. Now, um, certainly he is our Father in the sense that he is creator, but there is a uniqueness to the way that the Christian can call God Father. We are his children. We are adopted into his family because we are united with his beloved Son. That being said, we get to call God Father not in a distant, abstract way, but in an intimate way. The whole idea here is that we are looking at a God who is not only actually God, but one who is also our Father. Um, and I think that's one of those things that we, we, the language that we use often, I think we shortchange ourselves here. Like when we genuinely consider the fact that when we call God our Father, we're not, we're not calling Him Father from some distant idea. We're calling Him Father as one who intimately knows us and because, that we, because we are adopted in Christ, sees us as His beloved children. Um, not only do we see that we have a God who is actually God and who is Father, we also see Him as the maker of heaven and earth. Just listen to the language here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We have a creator God. Um, the reason this is so vitally important is because, if, because in his creating, he claims it all. Um, we're not talking about a God who is distant. We're not talking about a God who set things in motion. We're talking about a God who intimately created everything that we have. And in doing so, he therefore lays claim to it. Um, I forget who said it, but it was a lovely phrase that there is not one inch over all creation of which God does not cry, mine. It's his. Um, and so that being said, we serve a God who is indeed the creator. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen is sweet here. It says, ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. And if you really want to spend a whole bunch of time looking into the splendidness of God as creator, spend some time in the book of Job where God has this discourse with Job because Job has become a bit haughty, even though he has been laid down into the dust. He begins to make all these claims to God, and he eventually just says, I'm going to be quiet now. Because God just walked, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he walks through his supremacy. And so essentially what we have in the God that we say we serve is a God who is actually God, a God who is a father to those who are his and also to all creation, but uniquely to those who are his. And then lastly, we have one who is a creator. And in doing so, in creating, he lays claim to everything. Now, this is important for us because I think we, if, we, if we grasp this appropriately, it changes the way that we interact with the world as a whole. I think we do well to remember that there is nothing that we actually possess, that it is actually all His, and since it is all His, we are simply stewards of it. Should we view everything in this light, I think we would find ourselves being more faithful stewards of not only the, the possessions that we have, but the interactions that we have, because time is His. I mean, when we, when we walk through this to the... To the nth degree, we're going to say that everything is his. The, the beating of your heart is his. The time that he's given you is his. Your children are his. Your spouse is his. And he's simply given you the opportunity to steward that and to do so well, Lord willing. And so, in short, we believe God is God. Um, this is, like I said, this is wildly controversial. Um, a God who is, who is God is something that, 
that really is a violation to most people's consciences. The idea that God is supreme first and foremost, and then secondly, a God who is sovereign. That there is no, there's nothing that is outside of his control. There's not a single thing that's outside of his control. Everything that occurs, every moment, every breath, all of it is his, and he is simply gracious to give it. And so this introduction is to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God who is God, who is on his throne reigning. Everything is his, and nothing is too hard for him. Now, that leads us directly into where this creed spends most of its time. Because what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimate. We believe everything that's said here, but can I just tell you, there are Jews who believe the exact same thing we just said. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. To that, any Jew, frankly, many Muslims would say, yes. That the cults that would knock on your door on Saturday afternoon, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would say, of course he is. And so the distinction here is when we see the person of Christ, who he is, what is revealed. Now, we've been talking about this for a while as we've been walking through the book of John. And, I, and I've said this multiple times, and I do think it's really helpful that if we look to Jesus and we see, a, or we see him and have a disdain for him, that what, what is being revealed is actually our hatred of God. And so when we look to Jesus, and this is why I think the creed spends so much time focusing on the person of Christ, is because if we get that wrong, it's just indicating that we've missed everything else altogether. And so let's look at what the creed says. It starts like this. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. There's a lot in that simple phrase. So let's just consider a couple. First, we want to look at, oh, sorry, we're going to go back. So there's two major themes in this, in this creed. You've got the person of Jesus. So who is he? Like, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word ontological. Who actually is he? What is he made of to some degree? What is his essence? And then secondly, the work of Jesus. We want to understand both his person and then his work. And if we get one of these wrong, uh, then, we're, then we're in left field somewhere, and it's got to have some correction. So uh, let's look at the person of Jesus, because that first phrase gives us a lot of information. First, we see him called Jesus Christ. Now, we hear that, and it says, and, and, and almost innately, whether we like to admit it or not, we hear a last name. We instantly think if Jesus had a mailbox, it would say Jesus Christ. Now, the issue is, we all know that's not true, though. That word, Christ, carries a great deal of weight. That word, Christ, Acts 2.36 says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the people who are hearing this are thinking about the Christ who they have been longing and waiting for. They're thinking about one who will deliver them. They're thinking about one who is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made all the way back from Genesis even to the present time. They've been waiting for this prophet this priest and this king, and Jesus shows up and fulfills all of it simultaneously. And so, so the way that we look at this is saying Jesus is the Christ, is the way that I think would be best articulated. Jesus is the promise to all of these, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment to all of these promises of old, and so he is indeed the Christ. Now, not only is he the Christ, he is also the only Son of God. So, uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to go here. The word is monogenes, it's unique, only begotten. He is the unique unique son, which parallels, by the way, with the language we would find in Genesis 22 when we're looking at Abraham and Isaac, the, the beloved, the son of promise, the idea of sacrificing your son, your only son, is the way that that's emphasized in
in Genesis 22. John 3.16 kind of carries that forward and says, uh, I think this is John's commentary, by the way, on what's occurred. So I think John's articulating this. We can disagree about that later. Um, So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the monogenes, the only begotten son of God, is the Christ. That he is the promised one. And this indicates something vitally important, which we'll get to in a little bit, but that he is of the same, not a like essence, but the same essence of the Father. He is his monogenes, his only son. We also see him as Lord. Now, over the past couple of decades, it's honestly kind of all before my time, but there was this huge debate that took place. And this huge debate was over what's called lordship salvation. And lordship salvation is this idea that we can, we can divorce Christ from his saviorhood and his lordship. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and confess to you that I think that's absolute garbage. Um, Jesus is Lord, period, and he is Savior. And anyone who comes into saving faith of Christ delights to bow to his lordship. It is a product of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. When we were walking through John 15, we simply looked at that very, I think it may have been 14, sorry. Uh, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you have come to a saving faith of Jesus and you love him, the natural response, the only response is obedience unto him. And so the idea of divorcing these things is, I think, error. But when we consider him as Lord, it goes past that. It considers him being Lord of absolutely everything. So Revelation 17, 14 says this, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. I love this. You know, sometimes you just need a little wind in your sails, and if you need that, just head to Revelation, look who wins, and all will be well. Um, And so you have these enemies coming against him, and it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them under my heel. For he is the Lord of Lord, and the, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. He is Lord of Lords. That anyone who would like to boast, anyone who would like to present their authority before him are going to find themselves submissive to him in every way. Because the breath that they're breathing out and to, to spur him is actually the breath that he gave. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And so you see the, you see the, in, the, in this creed this focus on Christ's person being he is Savior, he is Messiah, he is Lord. Now, this is where I wanted to mention his same uh, nature, same essence of the Father. So uh, the language that's used here is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, I, and I'm going to hit this and I want to go forward. So we're going we're gonna to move, kind of co- combine two of these. And so Luke 135 is where we see this. We're all familiar. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that leads us into the next one, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, this is a doctrine that is wildly under assault and has been for decades. As a matter of fact, when people normally aim to assault the personhood of Christ, whatever it is, they're aiming to bring him lower. Normally, they start here. There are many that would affirm the resurrection of Christ from the dead, all the while denying his virgin birth. Um, if you ask me, if you're going to accept the resurrection, I don't know why you wouldn't accept anything else. It, it, that's, that's, I mean, if, if we say Jesus was raised from the dead, it, you're not, it's not going to be hard for you to convince me that he was born of a virgin. Um, and the scriptures are abundantly clear here. And so I want to kind of read a couple of verses, then I want to go back and discuss why this is so vitally important and why this can't be taken out of the Christian faith. So a couple of things. Isaiah seven fourteen. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. First, this is a promise that was given. And I would argue this is a promise that's given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The whole premise of the curse is that it's met with this glimmer of hope that there is going to be one comes who is born of the seed of woman that will actually crush the head of the serpent. That as the serpent goes to attack him, he will be victorious. He will, in the serpent attacking him, crush the head of the serpent, that he will be victorious. And that promise was given, and it was given like this, the seed of woman. That's peculiar language. And it's the theme that Genesis runs with throughout the entire book. If you've maybe struggled looking through the book of Genesis and you're trying to figure out what's this about, um, it's probably because we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. If you read through Genesis and you consider the idea that what's actually being traced is the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden you're going to see Genesis in a brand new light. Um, And what you're going to see is a provision, a protection of that seed so that it will come to fruition and ultimately be born from the virgin Mary, and his name would be called Jesus. And so it was promised of old. Isaiah prophesies it. Luke chapter 1 verse 34 makes this clear. And, and there are some that would argue, by the way, that when Mary is, that when the New Testament uses this language, it could be translated as young woman. Um, so here's what I think puts the death blow to that. Mary looks at the angel and says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Um, you know, she couldn't, looking up and saying, how would this be since I'm a young woman, just really makes a little less sense to me. So um, anyway, so she's surprised by this. And the reason this is so vitally important, the reason that the doctrine of the virgin birth, the reason the doctrine of, uh, of this conception by the Holy Spirit is so vitally important is because if we don't have that, if Jesus was born naturally, he is born in Adam and he inherits original sin just like each and every one of us do. He is born a sinner. Uh, he is born with both the imputed righteous, I mean imputed sin of Adam and then will in likelihood, I would argue, then continue and actually sin. So um, this is a doctrine that really cannot be abandoned. If it is abandoned, then I think we've abandoned the gospel. There's really no hope for us. We need a better federal head, and that federal head is Jesus, and he was born of a virgin, so he could be just that. If you want to do some more exploration of that, Romans chapter 4 will be of aid to you. So um, vitally important doctrine of the virgin birth. This is crucial. And for anyone who would walk up to you and deny the virgin birth, uh, there are some that I have... uh, The Lord has been kind, and I've seen them be persuaded of the folly of that. Um, But the basic issue here is going to come down to, do you trust the Holy Spirit of God and His inspiration of the Scriptures? Um, And, you know, normally that kind of will introduce some interesting conversations. So, then we turn to the work of Jesus. And so, when we're considering His person, we see that He's Lord, we see that He's Christ, we see that that He is born of the Virgin Mary, that He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And all of those things point to His personhood, that He is divine in nature, that he shares the same essence of the Father. So what is the work of Jesus then? If we're to understand this and understand this rightly, we see his person, and that leads us into the question, okay, what's his work? And then we'll maybe work through why is it necessary for his person to be that, uh, and how does this connect with his work? Um, So first, the language of the um, of the conf- of the creed, sorry, words are hard. Um, the language of the creed is he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, um, there's been some conversation on why it, why it language is Pontius Pilate. I think the major premise is it's identifying the one who suffered, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, but what did he suffer? Um, what, what, why was he suffering? 
Um, and I think we, we see this very clearly displayed, I think, even in the Old Testament, really clearly. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul, oh no, it messed up on me, sorry. Um, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous as he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Listen to this language. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So why is it that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? He suffered in our place. He suffered for our sin. And I think 1 Peter chapter 2 really brings this full circle. It says, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So why? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this Christ that we're celebrating in his person, his work is as a substitutionary sacrifice. He suffered under Pontius Pilate that we might not suffer under the wrath of God. The whole idea here is that the cup that Jesus drank was a cup that was filled with the wrath of God. And it was even I mean, when you consider just the humility of this, that the sovereign of the universe would place himself under a court where he would be falsely accused, a perversion of justice, so that he might justly take the wrath of God in our stead. This is the work of Jesus. He suffers under Pontius Pilate. He is our substitute. Now, um, when we talk about this, we always think about it in, in, the, in, in the context of his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and they were right to do that. Um, but there are some things that I think we often overlook uh, certainly we look to the death of our Lord. Uh, and I'll just tell you, if you're having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness on your front porch, they're going to tell you that, yes, Jesus died. Um, and, and we can agree on that. But what we disagree on is how he died. Um, their argument is that sin deserves death, and death is this moment where you cease to exist just briefly. But when we talk about the suffering of Christ, we're not talking about him ceasing to exist. We're not talking about him drawing his last breath like that's the only substitution that we needed. What we needed was someone to bear the wrath of God for us. And so when we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we're talking about him drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, uh, the reason this is so important is because it really does distinguish us from cults. Because what we are saying occurs at the cross is Jesus drank an eternal amount of wrath for his people. Now, this goes back to his person. How can a man, even should he be sinless, which is an impossibility, how could he bear the eternal wrath of God in but a brief period of time? I mean, the, the, if we look at the scriptures, I think we see pretty much the idea of about three hours where Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath. How is it that a finite preacher can drink an eternal amount of wrath in three hours? He can't. But one who is truly God and truly man can. And this is why his person is so important. What we see in the person of Jesus is one who is indeed truly God and truly man, meaning he can drink the cup of God's wrath in three hours, and not just for one sinner, 
but for all those who would call out in faith upon Christ. And so there we see this, this, this uniqueness, this glory of God revealed in Christ that he takes upon an infinite amount of wrath and does so in three hours. But simultaneously, we see the importance of him being truly man. Why was it necessary for Christ to be truly man? Because what was necessary to be sacrificed was man. Man had trespassed. Man had rebelled against God. And so what had to stand in their place was a man. This is why when we look at Hebrews chapter 10, can the blood of goats and bulls take away sin? No. The blood of goats and bulls never took away sin because they were never an adequate sacrifice. They were there to point us ahead to what's to come, the true and better sacrifice, the true God, true man. And so what we have here is the true God, true man, suffering truly as man, but having to suffer also truly as God. So this is where his person and his work connect. And it's vitally important that we understand that. Should we present or should anyone ever maybe give you the idea, well, you know, I believe that Jesus was was kind of God, like a mixture of man and God, friends, it's already an, it's a losing battle. You've already lost him, his ability to pay for sin. And also you've already lost his ability to substitute for you because he's not like you in every way. Hebrews 2 makes that really clear for us. So um, what we see is the work of Jesus. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. So how did he suffer under Pontius Pilate? Why, was it, why do we have this crucifixion, this death, and this burial? So uh, first of all, what we see in the crucifixion, the crucified, dead, and buried, what we believe about the work of God, and, or what we believe about the work of Jesus, is Paul calls it of first importance. Now this is one of the reasons that we link anything that assaults the gospel to dogma. Because what we see Paul saying is, this is a primary issue. This is of first importance. Should we wander away from any of these things, we have taken an ax to the foundation of the gospel, and now we have no good news. And so when he articulates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you that one of the best answers you can give if someone asks you what's the gospel is just cite this. Um, he's given us all that we need there. He says, For I delivered to you as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so this is how the Lord Jesus suffered. He suffered on the cross. He actually died. He was buried, as we'll see here in just a moment, and that he will be raised on the third day. So a couple of things when we think about the crucifixion that I think are important. First, we glorify what we can see. Um, when we look to the cross of Christ, uh, there are various movies and things like that that would depict this. I think they're all a terrible idea, and I make no apologies for that. Um, but the reason I think they're a terrible idea is because what normally happens in the mind of a human being is they divorce the spiritual from the physical. They, they see the suffering of Christ physically, and, and we do right to observe that. What you see in the crucifixion of Christ all before the, the darkness comes, and he drinks the cup of wrath, is what men do with God. Uh, they hate him. We see that clearly expressed. But in his suffering, you see essentially what God will do with those whom he has chosen and elected to bring into salvation. He will suffer in their stead. And so when we see the visual, very clear, grotesque uh, picturing of the cross, um, I would encourage you that should that not violate your consciences, that you would do well to see amidst that. Not just physical suffering that Christ will endure for us, but the true and eternal suffering that he endured there, drinking the cup of God's wrath. So, let's press on. Here's the one that I know that all of you were like, how dare you. Um, so, 
let's examine this. Now, if you want to know something quite humorous, I thought, well, I'm going to grab a couple of books and look into this because I have a, I have a pretty strong opinion about what this actually means. So my, my friend, Albert Moeller, I don't know him, um, had a total, total, this is a 200-page book. He had a total of two pages on that. Really grateful for his labor there. Um, so... <laughs> So that being said, there are a couple of perspectives here before I jump in and tell you mine. Uh, first, this is not articulating that Jesus then suffered in hell after his crucifixion. Um, when Jesus says it is finished, it was the perfect, it is finished. It is actually accomplished. He drank the cup of God's wrath in three hours, suffered for all of his people, and then he died. Now, this language of descended into hell does not then mean that he went to suffer in hell, primarily because he, no one's in hell. Um, when we look at the language of hell throughout the New Testament, we are awaiting that. At judgment, you see death and the sea and Hades all be thrown into hell, which is the second death. That's to come. And so what you really had happen here was some language issues. So when you look at this, the word in the Old Testament was Sheol. It was then brought forward as Hades. And then what, you, what Americans do, right, we make every word mean the exact same thing if it's in common with another word. Um, and so we look at the word hell, and we simply took Hades, and said, well, let's say hell and let's press forward with that. And so there are a couple of different opinions. I'll tell you mine at the end. The first is that this is simply in reference to Jesus' suffering on the cross, that he descended into hell. Basically, the idea is him drinking the cup of God's wrath was hell, to which I will say, affirm, affirm. Um, that, is, that is no question that that suffering is. Uh, Shia Lin, a Christian rapper, said it this way, for three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. And that is true. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so that's, that's one argument. I think this has kind of already been covered in the suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. The other view, which was mine, uh, is that what you had during this time was a place called Sheol. And at the resurrection, that place was vacated based upon the finished work of Christ. And he brought a host of captives free. Ephesians 4, I think, articulates this really well. We'll hit that in a minute. And then also a passage in Second Peter, so, or First Peter. So Ephesians 4, 9 and 10 says this. Um, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And the language that is used there is that he led a host of captives free. Um, and so the basic question is, what happened to Old Testament saints when they died? Um, we know they did not go immediately to the Father. We even see the Lord Jesus, when he is talking to the thief on the cross, not say, today you will be with me with my Father. He uses a, a pretty interesting language. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the only time the Lord Jesus uses that word. And so what you see is him, I am convinced, that all, every Old Testament saint went to this place awaiting the finished work of Jesus that would then liberate them that they could be in the presence of the Father. The sacrifice for sin had to be made. So another passage, Acts 2, 29 through 31, says this. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and, sp and spoke of the about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The whole premise being that he was not abandoned there. But what really happens is at his resurrection, he delivers all the Old Testament saints who've been looking forward to the Messiah. He brings them out and brings them with him, that he might dwell with the Father with them. Now, all right. That's my opinion. Um, 
and I'm convinced of it, and I will do my best to fight for it. But you know what? Um, the major premise here is that Jesus actually died. The whole idea is that Jesus genuinely died, that he died for our sin, that he descended into what I would call Hades or Sheol, and that he experienced death. Um, and in doing so, then we get to celebrate all the more that his resurrection was not a swooning. His resurrection was not some crazy half miracle. His resurrection was a true resurrection of one who had died and who had been dead. And so what we see in this is, I think, really our hope. We see that in his death, we can look forward to a genuine resurrection. It clarifies, I'm convinced, the creed clarifies that he did genuinely die. So then we get to celebrate, right? So he rose on the third day. This is a true and bodily resurrection. Um, I would argue, we haven't, this is not in here, but I would argue that understanding the resurrection bodily, that Jesus bodily rose from the grave, is dogmatic in nature. Um, the apostles warred against this. There were people who said that Jesus was a ghost when he was raised from the dead, and they went to war with it. Pete, I mean, John starts his first epistle by going hard after this, saying, no, I touched him. I know that he bodily raised from the grave. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 21 says this, and it's important to note that the beginning of this passage, um, the argument is, if Jesus hasn't been raised, we have no hope. None. Zero. And actually, we're above all men to be laughed at. Uh, but, he says this as the, as the passage kind of reaches its crescendo, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Then he said to Tom, oh, sorry, jumping ahead. So you see this language of him articulating like this is a true and genuine resurrection. He brings then life. Now, to go to the bodily section of this, John 20, 27. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He looks at Thomas. We always give Thomas a bad rap, like doubting Thomas. You know, anyway, um, sorry, I just wanted to give you some church history, but I didn't. Okay, so uh, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put on your, and, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Can you touch a ghost is the basic premise here? No. What we have in Christ is a bodily resurrected Christ. He possesses a body that will never die, a glorified body as it were. And we'll deal with the repercussions of that in a moment. Okay, I got to speed up. Um, so he ascended into heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 12. And when he had said these things, the as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from, from, excuse me, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem uh, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Why is that so important? Why is his ascension so vitally important? His ascension is vitally important because of the next phrase. Because apart from Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, you don't have a mediator. That what you see, as Hebrews would say, um, a couple of places. The first, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe with the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, uh, Blake preached on this not too long ago, but the basic idea is he's finished. He finished the work. It's accomplished. When he said to tell a sty, it's done, it was done. 
He has finished the work, and then he now lives, as Hebrews 7.25 would say, to ever mediate for us. So look at what it says in verse uh, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, eternally, the true God, true man, intercedes for us. That he is ever constantly interceding for us. And what is it that he pleads? His finished work. When he stands before the Father, when he's interceding for us, he intercedes his finished work. I've done it all. Um, Spurgeon has an excellent illustration here that I didn't write down, so I can't tell you about it. Um, But the whole idea is that we stand before God on the day of judgment, and the law is waging. He deserves death. He deserves death. And that the law is thundering over him. But then mercy comes in Christ and says, I'll take the lashes. And in doing so, the sinner is then freed. And so what we have in Jesus is this pleading of his finished work over our lives. And brothers and sisters, if Christ's work is finished and it's presented before the Father, we get to breathe easy because he is the true and better priest. There will be no exchange. He will always be and eternally be interceding for us. It's a sweet and blessed hope. So, pressing on. Okay, uh, so just fun fact, a friend of mine, I told, I told a friend of mine that I was going to walk to the Apostles' Creed tonight. He called me a fool. Uh, he was right. So uh, he will also go to judge the quick and the dead. So Matthew 25, 34. I love these verses. So uh, Matthew 25, 34, first and foremost, listen to this. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't that good? What is it? How is he judging the quick and the dead? He's judging the quick and the dead once again by his work. So John chapter 12, verse 31 says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What you see in the finished work of Jesus is an, a completion of judgment. And what you have then is he's judging the quick and the dead. The question becomes, is he in me? And if he's in me, then by all, by, by all intents, we are his, and that this kingdom that is before us has been prepared for us. I mean, this is foolishness. I mean, when you look at this stuff and you think to yourself, how? This is passages like Romans 8 that I think about, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If you just need to be baffled by the grace of God in Christ, he takes ruined sinners and names them his children, names them after himself even. And so what you have is just this preparation of grace almost, a table prepared before you, that he is the judge of the quick and the dead, and he's also the one who mediates for you, and he's the one who bled for you. So you have this coherence in the work of Christ. Um, then it goes on to say that he is not, he's going to judge the quick and the dead, but there are two camps in the quick and the dead. Matthew 25, 41 says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, let me say this. Whenever we speak of the attribute of God's faithfulness, um, it should cause our hearts to soar, most certainly. Um, We should rejoice that God is faithful. But friends, this should also spur you to evangelism. Um, God does not pass over anyone because they were good old boys. Um, He is faithful to save and he is faithful to judge. And when we consider that, we must do well to prevent our own, I'm often convinced we do it out of a place of, well, you know, maybe, maybe a false kindness but don't let, don't let your flesh nor the enemy persuade you to think it's kind to withhold the gospel from somebody who seems like a good old boy. Um, he is faithful to save. He is faithful to judge. And those who are not found in Christ, this is their fate. 
Um, and just to kind of give you perhaps a more vivid picture, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 says it this way. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. He is faithful. His justice is not slow. It is not unjust, as I think often we might convince ourselves. He exercises a righteous and perfect justice. And that righteous and perfect justice, regardless of the extent of sin in the sinner, is eternal separation for him, which is eternal death. Um, And so, that being said, but there is a sweet verse here as well. When he comes on that day to be glorified, listen to the language, in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. Let's just pause for a minute and consider this picture. This idea is that there's wrath being executed across the globe. And here we stand, spared. How could we do anything but marvel? Because what we actually deserve is all that is being endured by those who are wicked, who are not found in Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, we get to sit and stand in the grace of God in Christ, that he suffered, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he ever lives to intercede for us, and that he has come indeed to judge the quick and the dead. So this is the work of Christ. This progresses us forward to the next statement. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, because I'm preaching on this Sunday, I'm not going to do a whole bunch because I don't want to rob my sermon. Um, so that being said, there are two major things that are, that are vitally important. Uh, first and foremost, when this pronunciation of I believe in the Holy Spirit, it echoes I believe in God the Father, and it echoes I believe in Jesus Christ. So what we see here is a being who is divine in nature, um, meaning that he, just like the Father and the Son, share the exact same essence. He is God. Um, And he is to be revered and honored as God. We are to think of him in a worshipful fashion. He is good to us. My prayer is as we've walked through this section of John that we've just come to exult in 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 the glories and the splendors that the Holy Spirit of God brings us. Oftentimes when we consider the person of the Spirit, we're always thinking about some some. crazy supernatural something that we need to be brought about to to revere and honor and worship him. But um, brothers and sisters, if you have any affection for Christ, that's a supernatural act. If you have any moment where you cherish Christ, where you forsake sin, all of that requires the omnipotence of God and exercise through the Spirit. He is to be seen as divine. Now, uh, there are some that would then go to the extent to argue that he is not personal in nature. Um, So first and foremost, if he's God, if he possesses divinity, if he is a member of the Trinity, then we are fools to argue that he is anything other than personal. Um, You never see God the Father nor God the Son uh, explained in anything other than personal in nature, that he possesses a personality. It would be foolish then for us to look at God the Spirit and presume anything different. For us to look at passages like Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, or to look at uh, Genesis chapter, which we're going to look at in a minute, or the baptism of Jesus where we see all three members of the Godhead present, we must assume that he is the exact same as the Father and the Son. So there's a couple of passages that are important here. So first, Matthew 28, 19, we're all familiar with this in the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If anybody wants to question his deity, why is it that, that the writers of the New Testament would write his name 
just like he writes the Father and the Sons in that exact same fashion. If he was not God, it would be to dishonor the Father and the Son. But he is indeed, and thus we honor him. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see the Spirit being present in creation. And actually, we see the entirety of the Trinity present in the creation. We see the, anyway, so uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was hovering was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so you see the presence of the Spirit. That means that what we have is a Trinitarian faith. Uh, We have a faith that is rooted, founded, built upon the Trinity. Should the Trinity be removed from the Christian faith, you have nothing. You have nothing. You're bankrupt. That when we look at the finished work of, of Christ, we see there the every hand of the Trinity present. When you see creation, you see every hand of the Trinity present. Every single action that occurs under the sun has, been, has occurred through the Trinity. Um, should we deny the Trinity? Should you have one knock on your door and call themselves a brother and they deny the Trinity? Don't call them brother. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures would go to the extent of not even wishing them Godspeed. They're going to assault the character, the person of God, all the while bearing His name. Um, and so... We have to come to see that what we have is a Trinitarian faith. Um, this is a non-negotiable. There are a couple of books that I might recommend to you. One is Delighting in the Trinity. I can't remember who it's by. Um, that, that's really helpful that might be of aid to you. So um, that being said, we have got to go fast. Okay. Um, so I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the community of the saints. This is the other word that got you. Um, so here's the deal. Let's not forget language evolves. Um, and so when we hear the word Catholic here, we are not thinking of the, the Roman Catholic faith at all. Um, as a matter of fact, literally, we will in, in just a moment leave, bring in the last thing that I think is dogmatic, and you'll see that they don't meet that requirement. Um, the Holy Catholic Church is making reference to the universal church. Um, when we did our series on what is the, what is the church, we talked about the visible and invisible um, church, local and universal. And what you see there is that there has been and will be a people across all time and space that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. That is the universal or Catholic church. That, like, maybe the best way to consider this is when we stand before the, the, uh, the, the throne of God and every tribe, tongue, and nation is present from across all of time, sing loudly the praises of Christ, what you have there is the Catholic universal church. We will sing together the praises of Christ. So we believe in a holy Catholic church and the communion of saints. You don't have to use the word Catholic if you want to. I actually think it's more helpful to say universal now, um, just because of the way language trains. So first, we believe in a universal body, but we also believe in a local expression. Um, There are some that would say there is no universal church, but they don't actually believe that. Um, I don't know how. Th- anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. So um, when we look at the local church, what we see is a, is a gathering of the universal church to some degree. Obviously, the entire body of Christ cannot gather in one location, and praise be to God for that. We can't gather in one location because we have different languages. We are, are scattered abroad. But praise be to God that what he's given us is a local body of believers to come and to celebrate Christ together with. And we get to have a foretaste of this every time we gather, but uniquely, I think, on the Lord's day. So we have a local expression. Acts 20, 28 says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. You want to know the universal church is? the ones he obtained with his blood. Um, That was the payment, and that is where we are. Then in um, 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It assumes then that we gather together. And actually, the passage that we read previously, Acts 20, 28, is Paul giving this charge to the elders who are overseeing flocks of God in their cities. So even there's almost this idea of you need to be aware that there's a universal church all around the world, but you also need to be faithfully shepherding the flock that God has given you. So, okay, we press on. All right, so the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, all of this, we've kind of hit on this already. All this flows from the finished work of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is just, if you want a life verse, use the Bible, but this is a good one too. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Debt is paid. We have the righteousness of Christ provided to us. It is ours. It is deposited to our account. That's the language we use of imputed. It is actually dealt with and dealt with in full. We also believe in the resurrection of the body. All right. I did not hear a single soul tell me about a bodily resurrection until I read it myself, like, after growing up in the church. The beauty of the finished work of Christ is that he redeems every part of you. That he redeems not only your soul, but he redeems your body. That every part of yourself, everything that makes you, you, is redeemed by the finished work of Christ. A bodily resurrection is clearly taught in Scripture, and we look forward to that. We long to have our bodies worshiping in the presence of God forevermore and have a body like his. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 57, this is lengthy, but it's important. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the, at the last trumpet, for, his, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A bodily resurrection, a complete salvation is what we see in the finished work of Christ, and that is what we affirm. Lastly, life everlasting. Um, Can I just articulate one thing? Everybody gets eternity. Everybody. The human soul is created, and it is created, and it will last eternally. It will press on. It will never cease to be. The splendor of the gospel is that your everlasting is done unto life. It's not in death. And so those judgments that we've seen, that death, of, that death is an everlasting death. But what we have because of the finished work of Jesus is an everlasting life, that it is what we hope to have and what we will have should we be in Jesus. So 1 John 5, 13. I love John because he just tells you why he's writing. Uh, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. When we say that we are Christians, what we are saying is that we affirm these things. We affirm the Trinity. We affirm the finished work of Jesus. It is all of our hope. We affirm life everlasting. And so when we come to have these conversations, this is the place where, where our tone should be loudest. 
when we come to have conversations about dogma, friends, if there's ever a moment that your heart should beat a bit harder, that you should find yourself maybe even a bit angered when someone comes to you, calls themselves a brother, and then immediately denies the deity of Jesus, that's when we should have the harshest of tones. Because they're not a brother, and they're bringing reproach on the glory of God in Christ. And so when we ask this question, okay, how then do we discuss these things? How do we interact with one who calls themselves a brother and denies these things? Well, the first thing that we do is assume and know that they are not a brother. That what we then must do is go forth preaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We preach the finished work of Jesus preach the Trinity. We preach life everlasting, but only through the finished work of Jesus. This is how we interact, because who we are interacting with is actually a lost person. They do not know the glory of God, for they have spurned some foundational truth that he has clearly revealed in Scripture. And so what we have then is dogma. These are crucial to the Christian faith. Now, I have not covered every dogma of the Christian faith. I think the Apostles' Creed is a great place to start. I would go so far to affirm that should we have a salvation that is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, then we are probably also having some other issues that we need to discuss. But we're all going to see, perhaps, that doctrine will lead into some uh, dogma as well. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for the clear revelation of Scripture. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to wonder about these things, that the, the Scripture is, is clear, that by the inspiration of the Spirit of God that you so chose to write through men, but no men wrote unless they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, the reason that we're dogmatic about these things is because the Spirit of God has revealed them as such. And Lord, to abandon them is to abandon the, the, the splendor of the Christian faith. And Father, we delight in the fact that we have, through Christ, been brought out of death into life, and that life that we have will be eternal and it will be lived unto you. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, as we press out into our society, I pray that we would be salt and light, that we would be heralds of the gospel, and that we would delight to testify to your goodness. Uh, it is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.